Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And we'll go clear down to the end of the chapter. Verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I'd like to speak to you this morning and maybe in the next few times on the subject of idolatry, worship of idols. Why would the last words in this letter by the last apostle be an exhortation concerning idols? Well, I think the answer is because he spent this whole letter showing how the Son of God has come and that he's the true, this is the true God in eternal life. But there's lots of false gods around. In fact, he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And one of the things that the evil one is going to do is try to divert us from the true God toward false gods, idols. So he ends up, his whole book here, letter, by saying, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. He knew that God's people would have to constantly guard themselves against false conceptions of God. Any conception of God that is at variance with his self-revelation in Christ is an idol. So we must beware of all counterfeits, all imitations, and all substitutes. Now, modern people, which I guess we are, may think that this exhortation doesn't really apply to them. But I think as we examine this subject, we'll find that it very much applies to us today. The fact is that most people still worship idols. Most people still practice idolatry. In one form or another, it is always, this thing of idolatry is always trying to press into our lives. So, John says, be on guard. We must keep ourselves from idols. A man named G.K. Chesterton said this, When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. Now why would that be? Well, it's because believing in God is the rational thing. It's the right thing. It's what we should believe. It's rational to believe in the true and living God. But if you turn from that, that rational understanding of reality and life, you must of necessity become irrational. So you'll believe anything. Just think for a minute of the things that people have worshipped and are still worshipping. Cows, 
monkeys, beetles. I'm not talking about the rock group, although they were idols too. Uh, birds, fish, snakes, trees, mountains, rivers, the sun, moon, and stars, and just about anything else. That's exactly what Romans 1 says will happen. Let me just read it to you here really quickly. This is Romans 1, beginning with verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. They weren't thinking right, you see. They became irrational. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God, the truth of God, for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Since the fall of mankind, people are born idolaters. John Calvin said it this way, The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of, of idols. We're just constantly making idols. He says the mind does this. That's where it starts. Perpetual forge of idols. In one form or another, mankind is perpetually giving divine honors to created things, which is the essence of idolatry. Giving divine honors to created things. As you read through the scriptures, you find accounts of people bowing down to images, kissing images, sacrificing images to images, worshiping false gods, building temples to false gods, raising altars to false gods, swearing to false gods, fearing false gods, worshiping angels, worshiping the hosts of heaven, worshiping demons, worshiping dead men, worshiping living men. It's just constant, over and over. Let's turn back to Exodus 20. Because right there in the Ten Commandments, God is instructing the people He's calling out of Egypt, who lived in the midst of idolatry there in Egypt, so now here's what I want you to understand. Here's some important things about following me. Exodus 20, start with verse 3. The primary thing, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one, the only, the true God. But then he goes on and says, in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters under the, uh, the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Notice he emphasizes that. Idolatry is just another way of hating God, of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, this primary commandment here, second commandment, make no idols. 
Charles Hodge says this, The two fundamental principles of religion of the Bible are first, that there is only one living and true God, the maker of heaven and earth. And secondly, that this God is a spirit and therefore incapable of being conceived of or represented under a visible form. The first commandment therefore forbids the worship of any other being than Jehovah, and the second, the worship of any created object whatsoever. So idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. Again, let me quote John Calvin. We must hold it as, the, as a first principle that as often as any form is assigned to God, his glory is corrupted by an impious lie. You make a form of God and you've made a lie. One of the things that the, the prophets often said to these idolaters, they don't realize that right there in their hand is a lie. This thing they're worshiping is a lie. Well, as Calvin says here, anytime we assign a form to God, his glory is corrupted by an impious lie. Now, we read this in, in uh, Exodus 20 here, the Ten Commandments, but at almost the same time that God was giving these commandments to his people, they were down at the foot of the mountain doing what? <laughs> Making an idol making a golden calf in order to worship him. I really think they weren't thinking about making some new god. They were making a god, an idol, to represent the god that brought them out. And that's what, that's what, let's turn back to Exodus 32. It's the account of the golden calf, but I just want to read one verse here. <clears throat> When they'd made this idol, in verse 5 it says, Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. We're going to worship God with this thing that we've made. It's going to be a feast to Jehovah. So, they were not saying that this young ox was now some new god. But this molten calf represented the true god that had worked so powerfully for them. They probably thought they picked out a really worthy representative of God, you know, an ox. Something that represents, you know, his power. But what's it really do? It insults his majesty and glory. Psalm 106, 19 and 20 says, They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a molten image. They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. So their sin was not in adopting another god, but in thinking they could worship a visible symbol of him whom no visible symbol can rightly represent. Often in the beginning stages of idolatry, no one worships the idol or the image itself. The idol simply serves two purposes, to localize the god it represents and to visualize the god it represents. These people wanted a god like the Egyptians had, you know, ones you could see and rally around. That's what they were doing there on that day when they made the idol, dancing around and, and carrying on in front of this idol. Something visible there for them. What happens, though, is that people end up worshiping the idol or the image itself, and more importantly, 
they bring the infinite creator down to the level of some created thing, which, of course, vastly distorts his true character. So, again, the God of the Bible absolutely forbids any visible representation of himself. Let's look at another example of this. God emphasizes it again in Deuteronomy 4.15. Deuteronomy 4.15. God speaking to his people here telling about when he appeared to them, when he came down there on the Mount Sinai. He says, verse 15, So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the ground. So he's saying, you know, don't make any representation. You didn't, you didn't see any form there, so don't make any form. Uh, beware, verse 19, and beware, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. So he said, he emphasizes, you saw no form. They were, they were going into a land. God was taking them into the land of Canaan, which was filled with idols, idolatry, the Canaanites were. So God warns them as they're going in. He says, remember, watch yourself carefully. You did not see any form in the day that God spoke to you. I think that's, he's emphasizing, I spoke to you. I spoke to you. You saw no form, but I did speak to you. God's word, that is what he said, is what should inform us as to our understanding of what he's like. No image can rightly represent God, even if the people using that image think that it helps them to think about God. It doesn't. All such images will mislead and not adequately portray the infinite, eternal God who is a spirit. So God does not, I've just basically hit this a number of ways, God is not, does not allow images of any kind of himself. All right, so if you're thinking, that might have brought a question to your mind. What about images of Jesus? Anybody think about that? Should we have pictures of Jesus in our home, uh, in books? What about movies where someone plays the part of Jesus? Actually, this has been a pretty heated issue down through church history. Not, not the movie part, that's recent. But, but the uh, part about images of Christ. The two sides were held so strongly at certain times in church history that uh, images were actually being destroyed. That was called the, 
iconoclastic controversy. Icon, which is image, clastic means blasted. <laughs> they smashed them. Well, anyway, uh, that took place a number of times in church history, and people have been killed over this issue. Those that think that images of Christ should be allowed say that they're helpful, especially to people who are illiterate. And it's not, they would say it's not a transgression of the second commandment. As we pointed out, the second commandment had to do with making images of the invisible God. He said you saw no form. Um, but things are different now, these pro-image people would say. Things are different now because Christ really did have a body here on earth. Colossians actually says he's the image of the invisible God. So these people think pictures should be allowed as long as they're not worshipped. The other side, there are people who say that the restrictions related to image making still apply since pictures of Jesus, a picture of Jesus is a representation of God, which is prohibited by the second commandment. Those that take this position point out that even if you say you should not worship these images, it almost always happens that the image is what you think of when you think of Christ. If you have this image, that, uh, this picture, whatever it is, when you think of Christ, that's what you're thinking of. Here's how J.I. Packer put it. He said, psychologically, it is certain that if you habitually focus your thoughts on an image or picture of the one to whom you're going to pray, you will come to think of him and pray to him as that image represents him. Thus you will, in a sense, bow down and worship your image. And to that extent, to which the image fails to tell the truth about, to the extent that the image fails to tell the truth about God, to that extent, you will fail to worship God in truth. So those who are against any type of picture of Jesus also point out that the Bible does not give us a description of the physical appearance of Christ which implies that God did not want us to make pictures of Christ, probably because he knew that would tend towards idolatry. So, there's kind of the two sides, briefly. So, what's the right position? Well, I would say, first of all, we shouldn't be killing one another over this. Now, I personally don't have much place for pictures of Jesus, since we don't know what he looked like. And I think it's also very true that no picture can do justice to Christ. These pictures must fall far short of who he really is and certainly rob him of something of his glory. Even if we had a detailed description of what he looked like in the flesh given to us in the scriptures, Paul tells us, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet from now on we know him no longer this way. In other words, when a Christian gets a, gets a revelation of Christ to his heart, you know that no picture is going to do justice to it. I just don't think there's any way to rightly represent the glory of God which Christ displayed.
I, it's through the art and thought of man is not going to be possible. Uh, putting a halo over his head certainly doesn't help. You know, somehow that's going to show the, the divine part of this person. Uh, I think it actually hinders any right understanding of what Christ would have looked like when he walked the earth. But, let me say a couple of things on the other side again. I think we would probably do more harm than good if we go through our children's Bible story books putting stickers over pictures of Jesus. It would be much better just to explain to the, the children when they're at the right age that we don't know what Jesus looked like. And uh, so consequently, we have to be careful about thinking that he looks like these pictures in the book. The other thing that I would say on the pro-picture side is just this, that uh, it can't be denied that as you read through church history, God has sometimes used pictures of Christ as a means of working in people's hearts. I'll give you one example of that. Count Zinzendorf, uh, he was born in 1700 into one of Europe's leading noble families. He was raised in a Christian home, earned a law degree, and was following his family's expectations of him as a nobleman. Things changed drastically, though, in his life in 1719 when he was powerfully affected by a painting of Christ that he saw in a museum. The picture was of Christ enduring the crown of thorns, and the inscription below the picture read, I have done this for you, what have you done for me? And that, he, he was changed, that changed his life, that encounter there in the museum. It changed Zinzendorf, and then Zinzendorf went on to change the world because he was one of the leaders of the modern missionary movement. If you know anything about it, it's incredible what happened through his life after this. So I'm just trying to present both sides here. I, I don't think pictures of Christ can do justice to him but God still might use them for his purposes. I, I even hear uh, accounts of this uh, Jesus film that they've shown all around the world and continue to show and have it, it's been translated into more languages than any other. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible what, what uh, some of these accounts have uh, related to the use of that movie in tribes around the world. So... Uh, that's, yeah, I guess where we're, I'm going to end that one is you have to come to your own convictions on this. Uh, this much is certain. Images should not be used as objects of worship. That we know. Well, okay, let's get back to the overall subject of idolatry. Because idolatry actually goes much deeper than any visible image. There are idols of the mind and idols of the heart. Let's just look at one verse on that. Ezekiel 14.
verses 3 and 4. Let's start with 2. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. In other words, this thing of idolatry really starts in the heart. Before, it, before you set the idol before your face, you set it up in your heart. That's because idolatry has to do with embracing thoughts of God that are unworthy of Him. That's Well, let me quote Tozer here. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. So we're talking about thoughts, you see. Entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Now, these idols of the heart are just as real as the ones that are set up in heathen temples. And they're just as much an abomination to God. So... Modern man, just because he's not setting some idol up there on the mantle, uh, is not exempt from this thing of idolatry. Idols of the heart are just as much an abomination to God. Let me give you another definition. I've kind of woven different definitions throughout the message, but here's one. Idolatry then can be defined as giving yourself to a person, idea, or thing that displaces God as central in your life. Read it again. Giving yourself to a person, idea, or thing that, dis- that displaces God as central in your life. And it may not be just one thing. It may be many things together that take the place of the true and living God in your heart. One person said this, Idolatry, in its larger meaning, is properly understood as the substitution of what is created for the Creator. The substitution of what is created for the Creator. People may worship nature, money, mankind, power, history, or social and political systems instead of the God who created them. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of this message and the next few times that I speak is just look at some of these idols of the heart that Ezekiel was talking about. Again, that's where idolatry starts because idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. So in doing this and examining this subject, I hope that we'll see how relevant John's exhortation is for each of us today. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So we only have time really to deal with one here 
in the time that remains today. So I want to I want us to consider the idol of nature. Now I picked this out because I've been studying the subject of naturalism lately, and uh, seemed like a good one to to uh, start with. You might think that I've already brought up this subject of nature because we've talked about false gods that the ancient people looked to, sky gods and tree gods and, and water gods and river gods and animal gods uh, of all types. Idols which by and large modern man, modern educated people have set aside. The problem is that there, we still have idols of nature. Primarily because of evolutionary teaching, which dominates our school systems, modern man has replaced these individual nature gods, you know, this sky god or this sun god or tree god. They've in a, in a, uh, replaced these, this uh, individual nature gods with nature itself as an idol. Naturalism, the view that nature is all there is, while they're denying, in one breath, nature gods, end up making nature a god. Darwin actually called natural selection his deity. So let's, let's first of all, make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about naturalism. Naturalism teaches that nature is the whole of reality. No God, no soul of man, no spiritual realm. The natural realm, the material realm, is all there is. In other words, nature is the explanation for everything. Nothing exists beyond matter and energy. People are just more evolved animals. In this system there's no ultimate purpose or meaning to existence because all there is is matter and what matter does by interacting with itself. Now you need to realize when we talk about naturalism, we're not talking about a person that just studies nature. A naturalist may be a, may be a Christian. We should all be studying nature. But we're talking about something different here. We're talking about a view of ultimate reality where ultimate reality is the material realm and that's all there is. One of the great contributions of the Judeo-Christian worldview is that it rejects any type of deification of nature. Got rid of all these nature gods. That paved the way for people like Galileo and Kepler and Copernicus and Newton and other pioneers of modern scientific investigation to do what they did. They weren't afraid of examining nature as if you might offend the gods somehow. They knew that they could learn more about God by learning more about what God had made. God invited them to do that. God wants us to do that. 
For them, the very first verse of the Bible had demythologized nature. It had demythologized nature. Again, I say they didn't fear investigating nature as if it would be some infringement into the realm of the gods. Nature should be studied. Unfortunately, in recent times, this demythologized, demythologized view of nature is actually being undermined by people who embrace a thoroughgoing naturalism. Now, don't, I don't want to lose you here. Thoroughgoing naturalism is just like what Carl Sagan says. He, the cosmos is all there is, or ever was, or ever will be. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's, he says if you have the cosmos, if you have the universe, that's all there ever is, ever was, ever will be. Because these people refuse to acknowledge God as the sovereign maker and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, they end up re-mythologizing nature. Now, I'll explain what I mean here. They end up re-mythologizing nature, making nature as a whole an idol. Because they refuse to acknowledge the true and living God, they give nature godlike attributes. Nature becomes sovereign for these people. Nature is sovereign overall because that's all there is, you see, is nature. God's eternal power, supernatural character, we're told in the scriptures, are clearly seen in the universe he's made. But people choose to suppress this evidence and instead ascribe miraculous, even mystical, magical powers to nature. Now stay with me here. We're talking about giving the attributes of God over to nature. I want to give you three examples of this. In the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin of human personality. All these things created by God. But the naturalist has a totally different take on this. The person that embraces naturalism rejects the idea of a creator. So how does that person explain the existence of the universe? It wasn't created by God because there's no God. Many intellectuals have made a mystical leap into irrational speculation saying that everything, everything around us, totally everything, has come from nothing. Let me just quote one of the most famous of these people. He says, Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe, why the universe exists why we exist. Spontaneous creation just popped into existence out of nothing. The whole universe. This is an example of what the Bible means by professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. People who hold such a position may be very intellectual. But what they're doing is making a mystical leap into the realm of magic where something can supposedly pop into existence out of nothing. 
That's it's just foolish. That's why the Bible says that the fool has said there is no God. It's foolish to take a position like this. Now, the Bible teaches that God created everything, time, space, and matter, out of nothing. Okay? But that's far different than nothing creating everything. God created everything. Nothing didn't create everything. In other words, someone, God, created everything. And because of this, there's purpose and meaning to life. The most basic thing about anything you touch or see is that you can be traced back to God. That's the most basic thing about it. Well, they, they ignore that. Well, not only that, they suppress that and end up saying, well, it just came from nothing. If you take that position, if we came from nothing and we're going to return to nothing, then our life means nothing. That's just the way it has to be. If we're all here because of some time way back uh, 15 billion years ago, nothing brought everything into existence, then nothing means anything. It's, it's just straightforward. If nothing is the cause of everything, then life has no significance. But you see, people can't live like that. And in some way, they always begin to glorify the forces of nature to give some sense of meaning. You can't live like that. So you have to come up with something. So what they do is they glorify the forces of nature uh, in order to give a sense of meaning and personality to your life. Here's how Francis Schaeffer well, he pointed out one thing anyway related to that. He said that uh, we need to be very careful as we read things by some of these proponents of naturalism because they start spelling nature or cosmos with capital letters. Why do they do that? Because that gives you a sense, well, nature did this. You know, Mother Earth or Mother Nature or Gaia. There's all kinds of things floating around now where it's a mystical view, you see, giving personality to something that came from nothing. It's a mystical way of trying to give a sense of personality to nature. This type of thing happens a lot in the extreme environmental movement. They idolize nature. Let me give you an example. This happens to be a quote from Mikhail Gorbachev. If you're old enough, you might remember him as a former leader of the Soviet Union. Well, now he's a leader of the global one of the leaders of the global, global environmental movement. Here's what he says. I believe in the cosmos. All of us are linked to the cosmos. So nature is my God. To me, nature is sacred. The trees are my temple and the forests are my cathedral. Nature is my God. A lot of these people start out as naturalists in naturalism and up in pantheism. So, what we're talking about here, we're talking about the cosmos somehow miraculously creates itself 
and then so somehow miraculously orders itself into the amazingly complex systems we see all around it. it you see, they're putting the attributes of God onto nature. Miracles. But the miracles are done by nature. Nowhere is this supposed miraculous power of nature more clearly seen than in its ability to bring forth life from non-living matter. It's something only God can do, you see. But now they say nature does it. Here the naturalistic scientist must resort to something that science itself has disproved. That is the spontaneous generation of life from non-life. That was disproved by Pasteur and a number of other scientists. You know, they used to think if you just put a little uh, meat on the, uh, out in the sun that life would spring up miraculously from that dead piece of meat. That was called spontaneous generation. Well, then Pasteur and others showed that's not the case. It's because of germs landing on there. In other words, the life that sprung up came from other life. Now, let me read you a quote here from one. This is a Nobel Prize winner. Okay? He said, When it comes to the origin of life on this earth, there are only two possibilities. Creation, that is, you know, God doing it, or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago, but that leaves us only with one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. What's he saying? Well, what he's saying is, I will mystically choose to believe the impossible rather than believing in God. That's what he's saying. I'll make a leap into irrationality. Believe the impossible rather than believing in God. So nature becomes godlike in its abilities to bring forth life from non-living matter. This is an idol, you see. It's an idol of the heart, believing this kind of thing. Well, let me give you the last, one last example here of the deification of nature. And this is in the area that we're most intimately associated with, ourselves. The scientist who believes in naturalism must account, must account for how mindless, non-conscious, impersonal matter brought forth human beings with their mar marvelous capabilities and capacities of self-conscious thought and love, and appreciation of beauty, and freedom of choice, and sense of morality, and all those things that make you, you. Human beings have an intuitive sense of self-awareness. We can think about ourselves. You can't deny this self-awareness without affirming it. Just try it. Who's denying it, if you're denying it? You are. But how did this mindless, impersonal matter bring about personality? Well, some naturalistic scientists simply deny what they cannot explain. They say there is no soul, no self, no mind. They simply don't exist. 
these things, some of them actually say this, these things are just the physical brain deceiving itself. You just think you have personality. You just think you're a self. And that you have a mind. It's just the physical brain deceiving itself. That's not a very satisfactory answer. Since it throws all thinking into the realm of deception. How do you determine when the, your physical brain is deceiving itself and when it's not? You'd have to determine that with your physical brain, which deceives itself. It's, just, it's a Looney Tune answer is what it is. <laughs> so how did the impersonal give rise to the personality of human beings? Let me quote Francis Schaeffer again. He says, only some form of mystical jump will allow us to accept that personality came from the impersonal. No one has presented an idea, let alone demonstrated it to be feasible, to explain how the impersonal beginning, how the impersonal beginning plus time plus chance can give personality, give rise to personality. We are distracted by a flourish of endless words, and lo, personality has appeared out of the hat. That's what you're, if you try to read some of these accounts. What do you mean by personality appearing out of the hat? Magic. He's saying they just put forth a mystical, magical view, and boom, out comes personality. Well... The Christian, of course, has the answer in the fact that we're made in the image of God, the God who is personal and self-conscious and moral and rational. Things like personality and love and communication and rationality and mind and morality and the consciousness and consciousness, these are realities. These are realities with God. They were realities before creation. Because the Trinitarian God always has been and always has these attributes. These things were reality in the eternal relationships of the Trinity. We don't need to imagine nature having some magical ability to bring forth our personality or any of these other things because we have a rational explanation for our existence and character in the existence and character of God, the one who made us in his image. So, let me sum up then. God is our creator, not nature. He made the heavens and the earth. He's the living one who has life in himself, so he's the life giver, not nature. Nature didn't do it. And he's the great I am, the self-existent one, who has given us personal existence. He's given us the ability to say I am, in a limited sense, under God. You can't do it on your own, but because you're made in the image of God, the personal God, you have real personality, real rationality, real morality, 
real consciousness, self-consciousness. So to put it in a nutshell, naturalism is idolatry. That's, that's what I've been trying to express. It's a violation of the second of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. Naturalism is an idol. More than that, it's a violation of the foremost commandment of all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's why back in, the, in that second commandment, it talks about God being a jealous God. God is a jealous God when it comes to anyone or anything usurping that love relationship that we were made for. It's no, it's no small thing if nature is being put in his place. He's jealous in the way a loving husband is jealous if a wife is unfaithful. Naturalism is unfaithfulness. In fact, it's hatred of the one who created us and loves us. I'm going to close with a quote from a Christian here. I'm going to paraphrase it just a little bit. He said, The reason naturalism is believed and taught as fact is not because of evidence, but rather due to the need for it. Any natural miracle that inert, inert matter is creative is preferable to the sinful person over a supernatural miracle that God is the creator. See, they want that. It's not that they're driven to it by the facts. They need that because they want to go on living for themselves. Yeah. Man cannot be autonomous, that is, live for himself, if there exists a transcendent God with a divine law. Such a God must die have to get rid of it somehow. Evolution, which is naturalism, evolution is accepted because it shuts him out and leaves man free. But what an awful freedom. A freedom to know nothing, to be nothing, to believe nothing. The words of Paul have never been more fitting in the history of mankind than right now, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. We have folly being taught to our children constantly on the TV and things they read if you're not careful and if they go away to school. Idolatry. So, little children, not just if you're five and under, but all of us, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, that was one of the idols of the heart, and we'll, we'll uh, pick up from there, Lord willing, next time and look at some more of these.